Good evening. Tonight we continue in our Lenten series called Portraits of a Savior from the Gospel of John. Last week we looked at the portrait of a faithful servant, Jesus, on trial in front of Pontius Pilate. This week we look at the portrait of a criminal, and it's the same character. But instead of just telling you Jesus was treated like a criminal, I want to show you from the Scriptures in John chapter 19, what that looks like, and the second part, why it's important for you. So the first part, we're looking into what it looks like to be treated like a criminal, as John describes it, and then why it's important to you. First of all, what does it look like? What does it look like to be treated like a criminal? First of all, a criminal is handled. A criminal is handled. Can you imagine for just a moment watching the TV screen, screen of a famous person maybe that has been arrested or a famous criminal? What does that look like that that person is handled? You see an orange jumpsuit, a police van that escorts him out. You see handcuffs. You see a strong armed guard on either side of them taking them by the elbows and leading them without any consideration of where they want to go. I mean, you're not a criminal that's handled, and, and, and you can't just say, I need to go to the bathroom real quick. No, you can't do that. You can't say, I need to see my family. I want to see my family. You're led from that van to the courtroom or that van to the prison without any say. And that's the picture that we get from the very beginning of Jesus' passion. And here tonight, you heard it in John 19, Starting at verse 19, at verse 16 of chapter 19, it says this. It says that Pilate was handing him over. And the guards, the soldiers, were the ones handling him without any control himself of where he was going and what he was doing. In fact, it says this. It's interesting. It says in verse 16, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And that word that's used there, to hand over, I'm about to go geekophile on you, okay? This is just a pastor thing, so bear with me. That same word that's used for hand over right there, paradidomi, literally to give over, is interesting for two reasons. First of all, it's interesting because the word has this connotation when it's used in literature, biblical and non-biblical. It means this, to hand something over because you have a strong personal desire to do so. And second of all, this is the second reason why it's interesting, it's the same word used throughout the New Testament and just moments before this, verses before this, as the word betray. Same word that Jesus used again and again leading up to this time when he told his disciples what? I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be taken. I'm a hold of. And it's the same word that Jesus says, you're going to betray me, Judas. Same word. Jesus is handled like a criminal who has absolutely no rights, and he's handled throughout this entire passion that we've been reading through, hasn't he? He's been handled, paradido me, by Judas. Judas had an intense, strong, personal desire to hand Jesus over. Why? He saw that his, that his master, his ministry that he had in mind was for some reason failing or the kingdom wasn't coming about like Judas thought, and so he had a personal interest in handing him over for what? 30 pieces of silver for a personal interest. He handed Jesus over. And then who did he hand them over to? The religious court. The Sanhedrin. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, this religious elite group that put Jesus on trial, who had already made up their minds beforehand that they were going to condemn him to death. You see, they saw Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus as a threat to every, their whole world. They lived in this religious world where good people went to heaven and bad people went to hell, and good people were accepted and bad people were rejected. And Jesus came preaching this gospel that said, the lowly, the meek, the repentant, yes, you, even you, the worst of sinners, can be forgiven. And they were threatened by that. So they had him in court and they trumped up the charges. And even though there was no evidence against him, they had in mind to hand him over to the secular government. Why? Because although they found him guilty of blasphemy, they could not put him to death. (laughs) And so Jesus is being handed off by one to the other to the other. First person for personal interest to gain money. Second, for religious interest to, 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 to push a religious agenda to hand him over and kill him and exterminate him. Now he gets to Pilate. He gets to the secular government. He gets to the the, the Supreme Court of that land at that time so that he would go on trial and the Jews hoped that he be put to death. And he gets to Pilate. And what does it say in verse 16? At the end of it all, Pilate hands him over. Who is Pontius Pilate and why does he hand him over? Okay, Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor at that time of the province of Judea. And for his pay grade, he didn't have the greatest job in the world. He had to rule over the Jewish people at that time. The Jewish people who were conquered by the Romans, the Jewish people who used to have their own country, who used to be sovereign themselves, and so they had a little bit of an attitude like a Texan. And, can I mention this, that they were uber-religious. And at a festival like the Passover, when national pride was swelling in Jerusalem, And when religious pride was swelling at the temple and all of this came together, Pontius Pilate, again, not a Jew, an outsider who comes in and sits in Jerusalem to babysit, basically, this group of people who were about to riot, has in mind some political things. He has this in mind. If you remember your 10th grade history, the slogan for the Roman government at that time was what? Pax Romana. The Roman peace. Caesar and all of the leaders of Rome would keep peace by force. They had the most uh, advanced, strongest military in the world at this time. And they would squash any kind of insurrection that would come up. And so if you were Pilate and you had a mob of people coming to your door at four in the morning, you had in mind, what, to keep the peace, otherwise your head would roll. And so now, Pilate, as you heard it, he had Jesus whipped, he had him flogged, he had him, he had him on trial personally, he talked to him. He talked to the people and he tried to come to agreement, but even after all of that, what did they cry for? They cried for him to be crucified. And Pontius Pilate, after Jesus has been handed off for personal gain, after he's been handed off for a religious religiosity gain. Now, Jesus is handed off by Pilate, even though Pilate knows that he's innocent, for political gain. He's handed off again, and this time, he's put into the hands of two Roman soldiers. And so, look at this. Listen to how Jesus is handled, and then listen to how Jesus is hanged on that cross. Because you have to understand that a crucifixion back then wasn't just a way that Romans put people to death. It was propaganda. 
It was a way that they said, this will never happen again. And that person up on that tree or that cross, that person was not just a sinner of sinners, but that third person is a threat. And so Jesus is handed over to these soldiers and he, we assume that he goes in a procession with the other criminals that are being put to death, carrying his own cross. We learn in the other Gospels that uh, Simon helps him carry this cross along and a stranger to Jesus at that time. But he gets to this place outside of Jerusalem, the place of the skull, Golgotha, the gallows. And he gets there. And as Roman crucifixions go, we can assume that he was stripped of all of his clothes right there for the thousands, if not millions, of people who were there that day to see, and his mother. And he was laid out on a cross, his hands, his feet, pinned down like a butterfly to a board under glass and put up for display for the whole world to see. And it was enough just to have two other criminals on his side, but they both started mocking the one criminal in the middle. A criminal is handled, a criminal is hanged, and finally, a criminal is helpless. Because at his feet, did you catch what happened at his feet? There's a flea market for his clothes. You know, Jesus said earlier in his ministry that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was saying there that he didn't have a bed, he didn't have a pillow, he didn't have a home when he walked on this earth as a grown man. He was homeless. But now this is a new low. Because even homeless people have clothes. God was stripped of everything that he had. And John writes about it. And he puts these soldiers at the foot of the cross as he's there himself watching as these clothes that maybe even Jesus' own mother had made for him are being sold away like a garage sale for their own personal gain. A criminal is handled, a criminal is hanged, and a criminal is helpless. Now, if you were just a visitor to Jerusalem and you were to just come across this scene with a cross in the middle and two crosses on the side, you would immediately know that that person hanging on the cross was an insurrectionist. They had committed some kind of big crime against the Roman government or they were a murderer or a rapist or had completed or done some kind of gross crime. And so you can imagine Jesus' own mother watching this happen. His own disciple, John, watching this happen and thinking to himself, he's there, he's right there in the middle of these criminals. And you maybe, as an outsider, have no idea what the story is about. You might actually feel that justice was being taken out on that terrible person on that cross. You know, several years ago when Saddam Hussein was put to death, the video went viral. And many people that were his victims or maybe family members of his victims felt justice. And many parents whose children who have been killed have not declined an invitation to the lethal injection. And it's not because their mind is sick. 
It's not. It's because they've lost something in their life that they're never going to get back, and they want just a little bit of justice to help heal. When people looked at Jesus on the cross, many people probably thought that too when they looked at this man, that somehow justice was being taken out. But here's the startling thing, and I love how John puts this in here, because it kind of sticks out like a hair <laughs> on a combed head that hasn't been combed down. He puts in this phrase at the end of this section. When the soldiers are dividing up his clothes and this flea market's happening at his feet, he writes in verse 24, This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. That's a quote from Psalm 22. David wrote that psalm, and he wrote it a thousand years before any of this even happened. And then it says this, so this is what the soldiers did. Do you catch, do you catch that? There's two reasons that John includes this, I believe. Number one, he includes a phrase like this that has been predicted a thousand years before, and he puts it right here at the foot of the cross, and you think to yourself, this is just this minute little thing, like some clothes getting divided up, but why did he include it? He included it to show you this, that every promise of God in the Bible is true. That God comes through every time, every time he makes a prediction, every time he talks about providence, every time he talks about the law and how serious he is about sin, every time he talks about how gracious he is and how forgiving he is and how serious he is about the gospel, every promise is true, even in the small details. But here's the other reason. Number two, what does this tell you about who is in charge the whole time? You know, those soldiers probably thought, we're getting a good deal out of this. We put this guy up on the cross. We're the ones that crucified him. And Pilate probably thought, yeah, I was the one that handed him over to die. But little did they know that they were pawns of God. That Pilate's name would be remembered by a Christian creed that would be said for hundreds and thousands of years later, but referenced in the greatest work that God ever did on earth. That the Sanhedrin, who were handing Jesus over to the secular government because they thought that they were squashing their religious opponent, were actually bringing about the forgiveness of sins for the very people that they thought had no reason to be forgiven. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, that they were God's tool. And that it was not them, or not even Judas, who was handing Jesus over this whole time. But it was the God who said, I even know and I even say that they're going to divide up the clothes at the feet of the cross. Who handed Jesus over? Jesus says earlier in John chapter 10, verse 18, He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. His father handed him over. He gave up his own life. Long before Judas schemed. Long before, and even the Bible says, he planned this since the beginning of time. Romans eight thirty two. I love this one. 
It says this, He, God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Guess what word is used there again? The same word for hand over. God himself, the Father, handed over his own son for us all. Romans 8, 32. And so, thinking about this, if it's God who handed him over from the very beginning, we're looking at this criminal that God has handed over, that, that has put up on a cross, that has made a spectacle of, made a billboard of, in front of everybody, why did he do it? Remember that word again? To hand over? Has that connotation to have a strong personal interest? God had a strong personal interest to hand his own son over. Not for personal gain. Not to be right religiously. Not to be political, but for you. And only you. And when he says earlier in John that he did this for every individual, personally, in this entire world, for God so loved the world, all of a sudden that criminal on the cross doesn't become something so gross, does he? He becomes the most beautiful thing in your life. He had a personal interest in you who have sold out for personal gain. He had a personal interest in me and you who, like the Sanhedrin, wants to make up our own idea of God and treat him like we want to. He has his, this interest of me who plays these little political games with my family and my friends to try to get ahead. He had an interest in you and me. We all, like sheep, Isaiah says, have gone astray, each one his own way. But who laid on him the iniquity of us all? It was him. And when he says all in Isaiah 53, he means everyone, from the sweetest kindergarten teacher (laughs) to the mass murderer to the Saddam Husseins. He did it for all, and he wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And when he did it for all, he's done this. And remember, we're going two places tonight. Number one, you've seen the criminal, and you've seen how he was treated like a criminal. But number two, what does it mean for my life? Why did God do this? He did it so that you have no more guilt, and he did it so that you're free from your sin forever. That passage before from Romans 8, what's our response to this cross? Verse 31 in Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The final three takeaways about how that passage and how this criminal on a cross changes our life is this, and you heard it right here in this verse. Number one, believe that God made his son the criminal and not you. He gave him up for us all. Number two, believe that God has graciously given you all things. You know, we talked about this in our Connect group recently on prayer. We pray for all sorts of things, sorts of things, don't we? 
We pray to be taller, or we pray to have him or her in our life. We pray for something to work out, we have a surgery to go well. We pray for all of these different things. But do you know what it says right here? That when God gave you that criminal on a cross in your place, he's answered every one of your prayers because he's created a relationship with you that's bigger than all of your wishes. That's why he can say that he's given you everything graciously, all your needs, met them all, and he met them all right there on the cross. Because even if you don't get taller, or you don't get him, or you don't get her, or you don't get the job promotion, you still have eternal life. Number one, believe that you're not the criminal, and God made his son the criminal. Number two, believe that he graciously answers your prayers in exactly the right way because he gave you his son. And finally, number three, You heard it right here. You heard it say, It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died and more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Number three, he has done away with sin forever and so you know how he views you? He views you like you have no sin. How do you think you're going to live now because he views you that you have no sin? You're going to put away you're going to put away the sin that, 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 that you've come from because it was buried there at the cross. You're going to put away the betrayal. You're going to put away the politics and the family. You're going to put away every time that you, uh, every time that you feel like you want to abandon God, you can put it away because he's given you all things. You see the criminal on the cross now? You've seen how far he's gone and you see why he goes there. There is no more condemnation he suffered it. Let's listen now to that reading again from John chapter 19, starting at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Let's pray.